Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. This summer, we will be having services on Sunday at 8.30, 9.45, and 11.15 a.m. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good morning, everyone. I hope you guys are doing well this morning. Thanks so much for coming out to join us. Father, uh, what we're asking you here for this morning is uh, what your scripture promises us. We, we, we want you to meet us here in a unique way through worship and our prayers and, and through the opening of your word. Uh, we really do believe that you uh, want to be active in our lives. And that's what we're asking for, that you would be active. We're so delighted that you've allowed us to do this great thing and to build a church and to build a spiritual family here. Uh, we thank you that we can be a part of Beacon and uh, your work and the changing of people's lives for eternity. Uh, and we thank you for the great opportunity that's coming ahead of us here as we get ready to move into a, another phase of our church life as we rent space. Lord, we're uh, delighted to be a part of it. And, and what we really want, Lord, is to be the kinds of men and women that can do your will in this world in your way. And so we pray that you would meet us here and transform our hearts, softening them where they need to be softened and giving us strength and courage where we need that. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. No one wants to be the one rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Right? We all know the story. It's uh, the great unsinkable liner. There's like one or two actual Titanic chairs that have been recovered. Uh, and uh, this is a picture of one of them. But this massive unsinkable ship was sunk. And the metaphor that we now use is, well, you don't want to rearrange chairs on the Titanic. Which of course means why do something inconsequential when catastrophe is happening all around you? And this is a great life lesson for us to keep in mind. I uh, drive very old cars, so there's always a warning light on in one of our cars. And my boys now drive old cars. We spend a lot of time at the mechanic. Uh, and it's hard sometimes to go and fix things on an old car. So like, it needs a little paint job. I'm not going to do that because the transmission's going to go. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fix a, a ripped seat because, you know, it's, it, 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 the, the head gasket's probably going to go. So you don't, you don't worry about the inconsequential when something more substantial, something more catastrophic might be right around the corner or in fact unfolding before our very eyes. I think we do this often without really understanding why. From the outside, it makes sense. We look at a person's life, we see a situation, we go, that doesn't make sense, why would you do that? But in the midst of those decisions, sometimes it seems like they make sense to us. You know, I'll work with a guy and, uh, you know, with a family where the dad will spend crazy amounts of time fixing problems at work. But at home, he's losing his wife and kids. And you go, who would do that? From the outside, you go, this is crazy. Focus on what matters. Sometimes, you know, you'll be talking to somebody and they'll, you'll find out that, you know, it was just a little flirting with a coworker. And now they're humiliated and their, their career is in jeopardy and their home life is wrecked. And you're like, 
What, you didn't see that coming? It's so obvious when you're standing on the outside and you go, no, please, come on, take. But then again, we've all been on the inside of that too, where we've been making those kinds of decisions, the kind that later on we look at it and we go, what was I thinking? Why would I do that? It was inconsequential. I'm rearranging chairs on the Titanic. It makes no sense. Sometimes you need an outside perspective to sort of wake up to the lunacy of the decisions that we will make. Charles Spurgeon is one such voice. He says that great numbers of persons have no concern about eternal things. They care more about their cats and dogs than about their souls. By nature, we do not like the anxiety which spiritual concern causes us, and we try like sluggards to sleep again. This is a great foolishness, for it is at our own peril that we trifle when death is so near and judgment is so sure. It would be an awful thing to go dreaming down to hell and there to lift up our eyes with a great gulf fixed between us and heaven. So that's what we're doing this morning. I want to ask you, where are you at? What is up with your eternal soul? We're going to be looking at a challenging little bit of teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually just two short verses. They're very straightforward in their idea and in their application. I'm really only going to be focusing on one of those verses, so it's a tiny little text. But I want you to know that I'm not trying to like be heavy-handed or anything like that, but this is a heavy teaching from Jesus this morning. And I, I'm not trying to like instill fear or use the bully pulpit or work you up into some sort of emotional you know, case or anything like that. But I, but I really do care for your souls. I mean, a large part of why I do what I do is, is because of this. Because it, it matters. And we're talking about eternal things. And so it, 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 it compels the, the, the trajectory of my life to, to try to do what, what Charles Spurgeon encourages us to do. Another place, he says it like this. It is a great mercy to be made to think about ourselves and how we stand towards God and the eternal world. And that's what I want to offer you. I want to offer you a great mercy this morning. At the end of the message, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, and I tell you this now because I want you to be thinking through it over the course of this time here. Because, you know, you might find that you are very comfortable in where you are at, or you might find as we talk this morning that you're not comfortable staying where you're at. And I want you to know that you'll be able to make a decision at the end as to stay where you are or to move in a different direction. And if something happens over the course of the morning, if in some way some of the verses we're looking at stirs your heart or raises some sort of holy concern or allows your priorities to be reconfigured, then you'll have an opportunity to make a step in a new direction. So let's open to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're toward the end of it now, and we actually have only uh, two weeks left in it, this week and next week. And they're really kind of a package, these, these two messages. They kind of like are two sides of the conversation, and both are really important. And if you only get one, you're going to get a, you're going to miss the main emphasis uh, of what's going on here, or you're going to be kind of overemphasis in one different area. So, But this passage 
is really Jesus beginning to summarize this narrow gate or wide gate that he's been talking about for the whole of the sermon. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So one is narrow, one is wide. One is confining and the other is broad. One is hard, the other is easy. One's uncomfortable, one is comfortable. One is crowded and the other is nearly desolate. And if that's all you knew about these two paths, it'd be an easy choice. Pick the easy one. I mean, why, why would only a masochist would pick the hard one? But of course, it, we are given a reason to not pick the easy way. Jesus says it leads to destruction. And it's easy to kind of skip over, read over that and, and say, oh, you know, destruction. I mean, you know the Bible, you have to interpret it, you got to understand it. Maybe Jesus means, you know, it will it'll be a harder path in the end. You know, it starts easy, but it gets harder. Or maybe he means it'll cause more anxiety for me if I, if I take the, the easy pass. Uh, or maybe, maybe he's saying I'll miss certain ways I could grow stronger if I take the easy road. That's probably what he's encouraging me to do. Is He wants me to get up on the hard, higher paths because then I could see things and experience things that I never would have experienced if I stayed on the easy road. Maybe that's what he means when we talk about destruction. I wish that were the case. But that's not what the word means. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word behind this is the word apollyon. And in its verbal form and in its noun form, it means utter loss, total ruin. I want to do like a quick little word study. The book of Revelation is filled with all of this tragedy, all of these curses that come down and, and scrolls being opened. One of them shows up in Revelation 9. It's one of the trumpets. And it says that after the trumpet was blown, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. So a plague of like massive locusts are being pictured in this literature, uh, pre uh, prepared for battle. Their faces resembled human faces. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Greek is Apollyon. Now, obviously, these are metaphors to trying to help us understand some, some form of horrific plague and suffering uh, that the world is going to experience toward the end of time. But you see what they're, they're doing here. They're making these massive locust creatures with scorpion tails. And their king, the king of this ferocious scorpion army, is destruction. He's been given a name, Apollyon. That's our word. His name is, is the actual word that showed up in our text. He's destruction. The apostle Peter uses this word as well. He says... First Peter, uh, 2 Peter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction, there it is, on themselves. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell... 
putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, that's Noah's flood, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is the kind of destruction he's talking about. The most epic examples of destruction, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, the most horrific moments, that's the kind of destruction he's talking about. The rebellion from Satan himself, the angels who were not spared judgment. It also shows up in one of our favorite verses, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We put this on bumper stickers and we put it up at football games and we have signs. We write it under the eye, right? This is like why so everyone knows this verse because it's such a beautiful verse. God loved the world. That word perish there though, that's a polyon. That's our word. What he's talking about here and he contrasts that perishing with eternal life. So he's talking about an eternal perishing. What is, and that's what he's really getting at. What Jesus is getting at is this irrevocable plunge into the abyss that separates sinners from the goodness of God forever. And Jesus is offering us a compelling reason to choose the narrow road to walk through the narrow gate, to avoid the wide and easy path at all costs, hell. Now, some may object to hell as a barbaric doctrine that is best left as a relic of unenlightened history. Fine. You know, let's stick with the message of Jesus. Why can't we just stick with his stuff? His is always so nice. You know, the problem with that idea is that if you take, all right, so take the Old Testament. That's where all the judgment and, and harsh stuff is supposed to be. You know we learn very little about hell from the Old Testament. And even if you go to the New Testament letters and you read all of them, you count up everything they say about hell, we learn very little about hell from the New Testament letters. You know where we learn every, almost everything we know about hell? Jesus. He couldn't stop talking about it. Everywhere he went, he spoke about the coming judgment. This idea that each and every one of us will face judgment in hell because of our sin was constantly on his lips. Now you might say, yeah, but hell is such a repulsive idea. Absolutely. It absolutely is. It was the place designed for Satan and his demons in their hatred and rebellion against God for all of the misery that they have spread over the face of this planet throughout time, it was designed for them. And you might say, yeah, but hell is so unjust. You know, I mean, who wants to believe in a God that, where there's a hell in the picture? I totally agree with you. It, it doesn't make it untrue. Just because it's a repulsive idea, just because we feel like it's unjust, doesn't mean that it is untrue. In fact, throughout most of history, in almost every culture, most people around the planet have believed that God or the deity or the power would bring justice 
to the world. In fact, they would say that hell is the natural result of the human heart's need for justice. It's only now in our comfortable lives that we don't see that, that we don't embrace that. But in a world of incredible suffering, for God not to judge sin, that is unjust. He must judge sin. There's a uh, Christian theologian. He's familiar with the atrocities that have happened around the world in places like Croatia, Miroslav Volf. And he says it takes the quiet of a suburban home, that's us, for the birth of the thesis that God won't judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. He says, if you experience what I've experienced, if you've seen what I've seen, you would clamor for justice. You would demand it. You would not respect a God who wouldn't make certain that justice ruled. Maybe you can't understand. You say, yeah, but how could God torture people for all of time? I mean, doesn't that make him cruel? And I think from, for, for this, it's, there's a misconception that we have about hell in this. You know, we, we think that God's putting people, you know, God is putting people on a spit and sort of like gleefully roasting them over the barbecue. You know, like we get this, tor this twisted idea of what hell is really about. Hell isn't about torture. We're not even sure that the metaphors have a direct parallel. You know, they talk about unquenchable fire and utter darkness. And we go, wow, that's going to be this horrible place. But the, the reality is those are pointing to some sort of truth about the soul and about human existence. I don't know that they're actually literally there because if you have unquenchable fire, you have light, which means you can't have utter darkness. So like the metaphor, they don't, it seems like to me that something, it's pointing to something else. It's pointing to a relational isolation, a loneliness, a separation. There is a, there is a, 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 dis, a dismantling of human hope, a disintegration that the fire represents. And it makes perfect sense when you realize that we actually are picking it. So we go through our whole lives and we say, I want a life without God. I don't want him telling me what to do. I don't want to do it his way. I want to do it my way. So we move away from God. And you know what happens when you move away from God? You have less of his life and his vitality and his joy and his, his pleasure. And when you keep moving further and further away from God, it gets more and more hell-ish. Until ultimately, at the end of your life, God says, as a, as a testimony to your freedom, I will give you exactly what you have always wanted, an existence away from me. That's what hell is. It's the absence of the beauty and the splendor and the, the joy and the relational satisfaction of the creator. And he will let you pick it if you choose. And he will plead with you every step of the way to not choose it. And God isn't happy with the result. You know, Jesus, he's on the cross. And he asks that his accusers be forgiven. The Peter, he tells us that God isn't wanting any to perish, but for all to choose the narrow road. The Bible paints a picture of God as heartbroken over our hard-heartedness and over our stubbornness. There's no joy in this for him. 
He desires our relationship for all of time. But he will not force it. You know, I, I like any kind of a, like a funny story I hear about, like, uh, you know, the end of life sorts of things because it makes us, like, kind of get into it. And so I heard the story about a guy. He uh, was uh, going down the road, and uh, all, he was in a dark alley, a place where he shouldn't have been. All of a sudden, a, a hulking, massive man jumps out of the shadows and beats him to a pulp, and he's laying face down in, in, in this alley, and he says, this is it. This is the end of my life. I'm going to die here in this alley. And he hears a voice from heaven, and God says, you will not surely die. Reach out your hand and he reaches out his hand and he finds a brick and he turns around he gets up he wallops the guy with the brick lays him out cold and he's like I can't believe it this is fantastic I'm not gonna die I'm gonna live and at that moment 20 of this guy's friends come rushing into the alley all armed to the teeth with clubs and chains and and guns and he looks back and he, he, he's holding his brick and he, he gets a moment of courage and he hears the voice from heaven say well, now you're dead. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what, that's what happens because sometimes the news we get from heaven isn't good news. Sometimes it's bad news. Now, what I want you to do is we've got a little bit of a, this is like kind of a little experiment here. I mean, not an experiment, but a little exercise. I'm going to have you guys uh, just say, look, and you want to pass those out on this side? And uh, there's another usher here coming. You can split it up and get it out faster. But, uh, and so what this is, is all I've done is we've been in the Sermon on the Mount all summer. And uh, what I've done is just summarized for us the different parts that we've been hitting on. Because, you know, each week we kind of drill into one little part of it, but we don't kind of look at it as a whole. But the sermon has two purposes. And we're looking at one purpose today, and we're going to look at the second purpose next week. And it's really important that you get both of them, because otherwise you're going to kind of head in the wrong direction in, in faith in general. But, but the one we're focusing on today is, I think, well captured in this little continuum. Because we're at the end of the sermon. So, go ahead and get a, take out a pen, take out a pencil, and mark on the red line where you feel like you fall between the choices that Jesus gave us. Because he has been describing the narrow path. You see, I know what, what's going on. Most of us in this room feel like, well, you know what? I mean, I might not be perfect, but I gotta tell you, I certainly don't deserve the hell you keep talking about. If I even buy the hell thing, I certainly don't deserve that. So I must be on the narrow road. And so we're going to take a look at what Jesus, how Jesus describes the narrow road. So you take the first one. Are you more of a proud person or a meek person? If you say, well, you know, I'm a very, very meek person, then go ahead and mark an X on that red line all the way over to meek. If you say, oh, actually, I'm a bit of an arrogant you know, jerk sometimes, then you mark it closer to proud. And you might say, well, I'm kind of right down the middle, then mark it right down the middle. And then just go right down this line and go ahead and grab, you know, all of these as best you can. And just do it quickly. You don't have to like, you know, it's not like, you know, the SATs. Uh, just kind of get, get in there and kind of jump in. So you see argumentative or peaceful. And you say, I never argue. All right, then mark yourself all the way on the peaceful continuum. If you're not an argumentative person, then mark it all the way on peaceful. Are you comfortable in your life or are you persecuted? Are you unknown as a Christian or are you insulted for Jesus? Notice that continuum is a little bit of a shift, but you know. If you're unknown as a Christian, if most of your coworkers, your neighbors would never think that you are a follower of Christ, that's on one side. But if, in fact, it does impact your life, everyone knows that you're a follower of Christ and you receive some sort of grief or heartache because of that decision, Jesus says that that would be expected. That's insulted for Jesus. 
You'll see the other one there, pick and choose what you will obey. This is a huge one. You know, we love to pick and choose what we will obey. Or do you obey every single law of God? You might say, well, no, I don't obey every single law. I kind of, there are some things I do and some things I don't do. And, you know, but, you know, mark where you, where you feel like you are at. Everything God says or, you know, most of the things I like that he says. Do you say mean things? Do you call people names even behind their back when they can't hear you? Or are you kind to everyone? Do you give in to your lust with real people and or in your entertainment? Or do you guard your eyes from lust? Do you keep what is yours or do you give to those who ask? And you say, well, I kind of do both. I mean, I'm not like I don't give everything away, but, you know, I give a little bit away and then mark yourself appropriately where you feel like you're out on the continuum. And just go right down the line here. Do you buy bigger, nicer things for yourself and your family or do you invest your money in eternity? If you're like most people, you'll say, I kind of do both. You know, I give a little here, I help out there, but of course, mostly uh, what I do, then you, you put yourself to a little to the left side of that continuum. Do you experience chronic worry or do you live at peace? Now, one of the purposes on the Sermon on the Mount is for us to take a look at his list and realize that we have not perfectly lived the narrow road life. That's part of the reason he puts these all together. It's why he ramps it up from the law. He says, you heard it said, but I tell you it's even harder than you said, than, than you knew. One of the reasons he does this is because most of us get very comfortable with our lifestyle choices. And Jesus is trying to strip away all of that and say, let me show you how much you really do struggle. If you didn't nail it with a perfect score, then you're struggling in your journey on the narrow road. In fact, he would say, you're now not on the narrow road. And you go, that's not fair, but I'm trying. I'm working really hard at it. But listen to these verses. God says, you break a law, you're a lawbreaker. James chapter 2. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. One law. You're a lawbreaker and you deserve the punishment that comes with that. What's the punishment? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. See, what, what we're talking about here is inc our incredible consequences for the decisions we make every day. We don't like this, these truths. We want to avoid these truths. What road are you on? You see, the Sermon on the Mount is trying to strip away any facade that you might keep up that you're actually a good person. Because according to the scriptures, you don't deserve eternity with God in heaven. None of us do. And you go through this and you start to see, well, I'm still struggling in all of these areas. And yes, that's why so many people are on the wide road. That's why Jesus says it's the other one's so difficult. That's why most everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed but three people. That's why when the flood came, eight survived out of countless millions on the planet, eight survived. No one deserves heaven. And most everyone refuses the one way that God has provided so that you don't need to worry if you have failed the test. God knows you have failed the test. He knows that you're not going to live the way you ought to live. And so he sent someone who would so that he could take your place. 
reading things like this, reading the Ten Commandments, you're supposed to have a, a sense of despair at the end of it where you say, I'll never be able to do this. Yes, finally. If you get to that place, you're at exactly where you need to be to pick the narrow gate. Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Romans chapter 3, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. His righteousness. He fulfilled the law for you. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. How do you know that you can get to heaven? I promise you, you can't earn it. That's what he tells us over and over and over. You can't be a good enough person. It is only through the faith of trusting in the work of Jesus that you can have eternal life. It is the only way to get on the narrow road. And most everyone you meet on the wide road will tell you the same thing. I feel like I'm good enough to get to God. And Jesus says, you're not. You're on the path to destruction. And quite frankly, I would... He wouldn't have come and died if you could have done it on your own. So what I have here, I'm going to ask uh, the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a song as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. But before uh, they, uh, we do that, they're going to come up, though. I want you to take a look at that bottom little perforated section there. And on the back of this sheet, there is a prayer of repentance and faith. And in a moment, I'm going to read this. I'm going to have you guys who, who want to read it, uh, to read it with us. Uh, and then on the bottom of it, there's a perforated little card that I'm going to ask you to rip off. And I'd love to hear where each person is at this morning uh, as, uh, as we sort of wrap up uh, the message here. You've been given an opportunity at this moment to decide whether you will continue on the broad road of self-reliance that moves away from God or whether or not you will pursue the narrow road that leads to Jesus. This is just a simple prayer uh, of the sort where we say, you know what, God, this is the way, uh, this is the, the, what's in my heart, this is what I really believe, and this is who I want to be. And if that's you this morning, then you can make a decision with us right now to choose the narrow road. Uh, after that, I'm going to ask you to mark this card, jot your name on it if you're, if you're comfortable with the email or phone number. And you might say, there's three choices on the back of it. One says, I am already fully trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm committed to walking the narrow road. That would be what many people who have been in the faith a long time might mark. Other says, I've not fully trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I want to. And if that's you today and you're willing to pray this prayer and you want to get moving on your journey of faith, then we'll contact you and give you more information. And if you're not, I want to give you an opportunity to make a decision that says, I have not fully trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I am not ready to do it right now. Because there's no better way for us to get clarity as to where we're at than to make the commitment right here, even now, this morning. And then I'm going to have you fold it up, 
And uh, while they, they uh, prep their, sing their song, I'm going to have you guys pass it in to uh, the middle aisle and the ushers are going to come down and collect them. But right now I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray it out loud. I'm going to ask all of you who have prayed this in the past to pray it with me. Anybody who wants to pray it for the first time to pray it. And if it's not you, this isn't, doesn't reflect who you are and what you want right now, then just uh, then don't pray it with us. Uh, and we'll await uh, another day where perhaps uh, you're ready to do that. So let's pray it. God, I know, I'm going to have you guys pray it out loud with me. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the consequences of my sin. And I know I can't save myself. However, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that his death and resurrection provided for my forgiveness. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me. Help me to live the rest of my life honoring and loving Jesus. Amen.